Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, a year late, amid deepening scandal and a rampant pandemic, the Tokyo Olympic Games finally kicked off. We head to the city for the opening ceremony. An Olympics that will highlight the power of an unaccountable global sporting organisation over the people paying for its two-week-long festival. Welcome to the first COVID Games. Plus, we stop off in Colombia for a refreshing summer drink. I discovered this recipe on a steamy afternoon. I pulled onto the sidewalk to find a bunch of school kids chatting and joking away as they dipped their spoons into tall cups of crushed watermelon with tons of lime and ice. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Marcus Hippi. A year after they were originally scheduled, the 2020 Olympics are now finally underway in Tokyo. In front of an empty stadium, the opening ceremony took place on Friday evening. A number of sports had already begun with many scheduled this weekend, but the Games have been plagued by controversy and opposition from the Japanese public, who overwhelmingly don't want them to go ahead. Monocle 24's Olympic correspondent Kieran Pendris in Tokyo and filed this report. This was not the opening ceremony that Tokyo 2020 organisers had planned. Awarded to Japan in 2013, these Olympics were supposed to symbolise the nation's triumph over the adversity of the 2011 earthquake, tsunami and nuclear disaster that devastated Fukushima. In a rapidly changing world, with a mighty neighbour emerging just across the East China Sea, the Tokyo Olympics were intended to underscore Japan's economic and political strength in a show of soft power. The International Olympic Committee has the honour of announcing that the Games of the 32nd Olympiad in 2020 are awarded to the city of Tokyo. Instead, In the vast and empty Olympic Stadium on Friday night, the ceremony marked the start of a Games no longer wanted by the Japanese. An Olympics that will highlight the power of an unaccountable global sporting organisation over the people paying for its two-week-long festival. Welcome to the first COVID Games. After postponing Tokyo 2020 due to the pandemic, local organisers and the International Olympic Committee had hoped that the virus would be under control by July 2021. That has proven to be wishful thinking. Tokyo is currently in a state of emergency, with COVID numbers rising on a daily basis. Despite the latest outbreak and the rapid global spread of the Delta variant, 70,000 members of the Olympic movement, including 11,000 athletes and 5,000 journalists, have descended on Tokyo from all corners of the globe. Thank you for waiting, ladies and gentlemen. Passengers involved in the Olympic and Paralympic Games, please disembark the forward exit. The staff of the Games Organizing Committee... The Olympic family as it is somewhat optimistically labelled, has been arriving in recent days to a strict set of COVID countermeasures. 
Athletes are kept in a bubble consisting of the athletes' village and competition venues, while journalists cannot stray beyond the confines of a pre-approved activity plan for the first 14 days of their stay. At my own hotel, an elderly security guard keeps watch to ensure no deviations, although I am allowed to the local convenience store, provided I am back within 15 minutes. Daily COVID testing and strict isolation measures are supposed to keep the Olympics safe for all. But with Tokyo 2020 visitors unable to use public transport and instead shuttled around on overcrowded Olympic buses, it remains to be seen whether the Games can make it to the opening ceremony. On Saturday, at long last, focus will turn to action on the pitch, in the pool and at the field. The IOC will be praying that a medal rush for Japan, which finished 6th in Rio in 2016 with 12 golds, can win over the sceptical Tokyo public. A recent opinion poll indicated that as many as 80% of locals don't want the Olympics to go ahead. But go ahead, they will. COVID is not the only health challenge facing athletes at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. It's also really hot. With temperatures soaring above 30 degrees and high humidity, those competing in outdoor sports face sweltering times. Earlier on Friday, a Russian archer lost consciousness during the qualifying rounds. Her coach said that she couldn't stand it a whole day in the heat. A number of teams from around the world have spent recent weeks in warmer climes or in heat chambers to acclimatise. Due to COVID restrictions, they were only allowed into Japan this week. On Saturday, the home side will open the men's hockey tournament with a clash against Australia. With the sun beating down, I visited the hockey stadium to see how teams were handling the conditions on their final day of pre-tournament training. The heat will be a challenge. I think we're ready to meet that challenge. We've done a lot of work. We spent the um, last week preparing in Darwin before we got to Tokyo. That's the Australian women's coach, Katrina Bowser. After her side had finished training, I saw them guzzling blue ice slushies to stay cool and hydrated. If it wasn't for the COVID restrictions, I might have asked for a sip myself. For Monocle, in Tokyo, I'm Kieran Pender. Monocle 24's Olympic correspondent Kieran Pender in Tokyo there. Staying with the Olympics and to look at the United States next. The nation's opening ceremony uniform was once again designed by Ralph Lauren, a tradition that began in 2008 when the fashion brand first dressed US Olympians. But what aspects of kit design are key from an athlete's perspective? What's at the forefront of a competitor's mind as they don their national colours? Step into the stadium and wait for the opening ceremony to begin. For this week's edition of Monocle on Design, Nick Moniz caught up with the gold medalist and former BMX Olympian Connor Fields to find out. Going to the Olympics, I feel a lot of pride to represent my country, as do I'm sure most of the people going. And when you put on that uniform, whether it's your opening ceremonies uniform, whether it's the village wear or your competition uniform, there's a little bit of like, I don't want to say pressure, but responsibility might be the right word to represent your country well. And so obviously when you're doing that, you want to look good, right? Like, you know, you look good, you feel good, and and that's kind of, it all kind of ties in together. 
for us particularly, you know, I'm an action sport. BMX racing, it's dusty, dirty track. We get muddy, you know, so for us to have an opportunity to put a suit on, like, it's fun. Like, I really enjoy getting all dressed up and going through that process because it's different for us, right? We're not wearing our typical outfit of dirty shoes, you know, track pants and a t-shirt. You know, it's a part of the fun of the games when you walk into the ceremonies. You look around, you see what everybody's wearing, right? And the Italians are wearing like an Italian brand and the Dutch are wearing a Dutch brand. And it's, so it's pretty cool. I mean, I think Ralph Lauren just fits for Team USA. What is it about the Ralph Lauren designs for this year that really captures American identity? I mean, we're in blue jeans, so I feel like that's pretty American, right, to be wearing some blue jeans. Then the, uh, the jacket's just a nice navy blazer. There's a, a necktie with the uh, American flag. It's simple, but it's at the same time, like it's very clear where we're from when you look at us. And I think that's kind of the goal, right? Like when someone looks, you don't want to be thinking, hmm, I wonder where they're from. You want to be able to right off the bat know, all right, that's where they're from. I also understand that you get village wear as well, you know, things to stroll around the Olympic Village in where you're still wearing Team USA kit. How does that clothing that you're supplied with, how does that play off the opening ceremony uniform that Ralph Lauren's designed? Typically in in normal games, you go to processing, which is where you get all of your uniforms. They tailor it to you. They fit it to you. You go through media training. Like there's an entire day on the way out that you go through this process Obviously, this time things are different. When we arrive, there will be our village wear waiting for us, and that'll be T-shirts and jackets and pants and shoes and bags and things like that for us to wear walking around the village to and from competition. And all of it will have this patch on it, the United States Olympic team patch, as well as obviously the pony for the Ralph Lauren stuff. And that stuff's fun because you can keep wearing that when you get home. You know, I feel like Team USA never goes out of style, so it's great to have when you get home. And I guess I also want to dive a little bit deeper on, on the blazer that you mentioned earlier. The jackets, I understand, help to regulate your temperature. And I guess I'm curious how that actually works. Is it just a technical fabric or is there a little bit more to it than that? I had the opportunity to uh, actually see it and feel it and, and go through kind of the whole thing. So when you're at the opening ceremonies, you're standing around for hours, Right? And you're sitting in, in the stadium. And when we were in London, for example, it wasn't so bad because it wasn't too hot. But in Tokyo, when it's hot and it's humid, we're going to be staying there for a long time. And, and we're not all going to want to carry around you know, personal fans or anything like that. So what they created was a cooling system that sits in the base of the neck. Uh, and why they chose there was, you know, if you see people on a hot day, they put a, a cold towel around their neck, right? It's kind of a areas of the body that helps regulate temperature. And it provides like a powered personal kind of like an air conditioning unit if that makes sense that like cools down the inside of the jacket as well as the back of your neck to kind of regulate that body temperature and will make standing around for hours at the ceremonies better and I think long term the idea of it is if you have to wear a suit outside on a hot day be awesome to have a little button inside your jacket to say up keep me cool you know (laughs) I think it'd be pretty cool there's levels of it of, of like level one level two and the power and the battery uh, and, the, and the, the switch sit just kind of in your jacket pocket and you open it and you turn it on. I 
I mean, you talk there about being privy to the design and working with the designers. What was your involvement or, or, your, or your relationship with the design team? Yeah, uh, so I wasn't a part of the cooling technology, but I had a meeting with the design team after Rio and they were just asking, you know, what were some of my favorite pieces? What did I see a lot of the other athletes wearing? Was there anything that I saw athletes didn't like perhaps? What do we want more of? What's gonna be, I guess, more beneficial for us? And so I got to kind of give a little bit of feedback on my thoughts on the Rio stuff and they said thanks. And I talked to one of the designers last week in New York and she said she used some of the thoughts and ideas when they were designing the stuff for Tokyo. So. It's cool to be a part of, of that and learn a little bit about behind the scenes because there is a lot that goes into it. So that was, uh, it, was, it was a fun experience. So I, I guess I'm curious as well, what sort of insight did you give them? Was it, was it just about the fact that you're having to stand in the heat for a long time, like six hours at those opening and, and closing ceremonies or, or was there something more to it? With some of the village wear as well, I talked about how figuring out if it like a way to customize it to where it's like it's still team usa but it has a little bit of flair of wherever it is you're competing and that way it's it's a team usa shirt for tokyo right and obviously you're gonna want some neutral stuff that'll kind of fit across any games but one of the things they did for tokyo there's some shirts that say team usa but then it says tokyo in japanese right so it's just a little bit of that flair to kind of be able to say this is a tokyo shirt and that was something that I thought was kind of cool. One piece of feedback that I had as well was try to design the clothes that fit with the climate of where we're going. Because obviously we're gonna need a couple of jackets and a couple of things like that, but primarily we're gonna want light, thin stuff when we're in Tokyo, because it's gonna be hot and humid. The same way you're probably not gonna give the Winter Olympians board shorts. You know, it's not bad to have one or two of them just for wearing when you get home, but when you're there, you want stuff that you can use. The veteran BMX Olympian Connor Fields in conversation with our very own Nick Moniz for this week's edition of Monocle on Design. To round off our Olympic hat-trick, we take a slightly different look at the Games. As the latest edition of the Global Countdown was an Olympic special, this week Monaco's senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco took a look at the top five songs worldwide, consider it the Olympics of music. There's something very special here. Every single one of the artists, they come from a different country. There's no repetition. It was almost accidental, actually. So shall we give the medals then? I mean, that makes absolute sense. <laughs> you have to go for five different countries, though, to be fair. Like that was, that was the best way to do it. But let's start up at number five. Number five is a very curious story. It's Maneskin, the Italian band that won Eurovision this year. I mean, massive successful story. But they are number five with a different song. They're not with Ziti Buoni. They are with a song called Bagging. It's a cover for the classic for the Four Seasons. And this song was in their album from 2017. Uh, and you know why it resurfaced in the charts? Because of TikTok. Um, you know, people started and everybody's sharing. And this song became a big hit. Shall we have a listen? Not everyone liked this version, by the way. But let, let's, I want to hear your opinion after. Let's have a listen. Zambe. I'm begging, begging you to put your love 
Do you I, like it? <laughs> I, I gotta say, I find it fascinating how everyone is like pouring over Maniskin since since the Eurovision it, victory. I'm not sure that's their best, to be honest. Also, the fact that you even just pick a cover to go with from from everything that they've done and go back to 2017. It's it, it, a little it, it, strange. It's a little strange, but all I can say, they are becoming proper rock stars. I mean, there were stories in the Brazilian press about that and here. They are in the charts. I mean, because to be honest, in the last 10 years, the Eurovision winners, they were not really kind of dominating the charts worldwide. But I think there's an appetite for rock. We discussed this, Tom, a mm. few weeks ago. I think rock music's kind of back in a different form, perhaps. I was going to say, thanks for the caveat. <laughs> That's not rock as I see it. I feel there's something vaguely criminal about butchering, like begging, a classic track. That version, yeah, not that into it. But shall we continue with the rocky vibe? Again, I, I think Tom might be a little bit angry with me, but it's, <laughs> let, let's I take... get the sense that another rock tune is coming up. There. Exactly. Uh, a little bit pop rock. Let's have a listen and I want to talk a bit more about her. It's Olivia Rodrigo, Good For You, number four. Like I said, therapist I found for you, she really helped. Now you can be a better man for your brand new I'm charmed by Rodrigo actually. I mean it's 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 catchy. I'm not I'm not sure in my mind that it's that unique in its style I compared mean, to many COVID things you've heard catchy, before. Chris. It doesn't mean it's a good thing. Where's she <laughs> hail from, Fernando? She's from the US, United okay. States, the only American artist, and she's doing a great job as well. She met President Biden recently, you know, to you know, to to invite young people to be vaccinated. She's incredibly influential. Her album is the number one in the album's chart. Some people say that she will win all the Grammys next year as well. So yeah, good on Olivia Rodrigo. That had a kind of late 90s vibe to yeah, it. Yes, kind of feeling that? Every Levine, kind of that yeah. kind of pop punk vibe. Levine. I was there, I was there at that time. <laughs> Just about. Um, <laughs> I wonder, it's the, it's the kind of Olympic Games equivalent. Yes. Should we move to the podium positions and who's in bronze? You know who is bronze? The UK, the United Woo! Kingdom. Of course, the United Kingdom had to be there. Uh, and, and again, guy, in the past, I was not a big fan of this artist. I've changed my mind. I like it. He knows how to create a big earworm, right? That's how you say it. it's Ed Sheeran with the lovely electropop beat of Bad Habits. I have to say, I'm enjoying these scrunchy faces of our producer in the background. Fernando, <laughs> 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 tell me, because Ed Sheeran, you know, he doesn't have the quintessential classic pop star looks, vibes. He doesn't necessarily hail from one of the kind of epicenters even here in the UK. This guy's cracked the global market every single time. What What is the secret to his kind of seemingly implausible success. You know what? He's a very intelligent man. He writes amazing songs, not only for him. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a bit more about that. Uh, you know, there's a surprise here on the Global Countdown. And again, with that song, 
perhaps is not the most original one. It's almost a copy of what The Weeknd has been doing uh, for a bit now. But I mean, it works. I mean, it's number three here. And he's kind of stylish as well, more recently. In the video for that song, he's wearing a pink suit, which is very much on trend. Spike Lee uh, at Cannes Film Fest wore, wearing, wearing an amazing Louis Vuitton one. I wonder if he's wearing a Louis Vuitton or not. I should do a better research <laughs> next time. <laughs> Well, uh, let's move swiftly on to the silver medal position. We're getting close now. We have to divide, actually, the silver because there are two artists. One is from Australia and the other one is from Canada. Again, a combination of two massive pop stars these days. Uh, let's have a listen to the songs by The Kid Laroi from Australia and Justin Bieber from Canada with Stay. It's so catchy, right? We're, we're getting increasingly poppy, I sense, as we get to the sort of gold medal positions. Oh, God, wait until you see the gold. But the Kid Leroy is such a good story as well. From He's only 17. Uh, he's an indigenous Australian, but now I think he's, he lives in LA. He's doing so well everywhere. And of course, Justin Bieber noticed that and invited him for a song, of course. I mean, makes sense. Uh, interesting stuff, Fernando. Uh, do we continue in this increasing poppiness? When we get to the top of the pile, it's the global... Global countdown, number one gold medal position. Who is atop the podium? I mean, of course they would be here. They're juggernauts there. Uh, it's BTS with their new song. Everything that BTS releases, I mean, it will be number one. But before we hear that, guys, do you know who actually co-wrote that song? Can I take a wild guess? Yes. Is it Ed Sheeran? Yes. <laughs> it is. A, I mean, th that's what I'm telling you. I, I was going to say Justin Bieber, maybe. <laughs> exactly. Sorry if I fit his way in, but sure. Um, I mean, but BTS is amazing. Did you, he even was invited by the South Korean uh, president to be a special kind of envoy for the country because, and they will be at the UN General Assembly in, in September as well. They will be representing South Korea. So they are huge. I mean, BTS, it's undeniable. I'm not even sure if it's about K-pop. I think it's generally about BTS and their power. Uh, the song is called, I mean, I said that we were going to make the world dance. It's called Permission to Dance. Just dream about that moment When you look yourself right in the eye I, I, I Well done, BTS in South Korea. They get a gold medal. I mean, it's undeniable. Although the UK, you know, might get a special prize here because of Ed Sheeran. Honorable mention. Exactly. No one really cares about the trainer behind the athlete, though, do they? That's true. What did you think, Fernando? You made a slightly wrinkly face during that one. No, I mean, I like BTS. To be honest... Well, I prefer Butter, their previous song, oh, as, yes. as you know. But Permission to Dance, I think, is, is just nice. But I think, you know, we had an amazing track by Olivia Rodrigo, the electropop of Ed Sheeran. But, you know, I'm not surprised that BTS is here. And well done for them. They, they're representing their country very well. Monaco senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco is speaking to Tom Edwards and Chris Chermak for the latest edition of The Global Countdown.
Staying on a musical note now as we hear from a professional whistler next here on The Curator. As for the latest edition of the Monocle Weekly, Alexis Self spoke to LA whistler Molly Lewis about her debut EP The Forgotten Edge, an homage to her hometown which takes its name from the little-known neighbourhood in which she resides and the art and history of whistling. When I was 12, the biggest soundtrack, the thing that kind of inspired me so greatly was the Lord of the Rings soundtrack by Howard Shore. Those soundtracks were, they kind of got me into classical music because they were extremely symphonic and orchestral. And and I just, I loved the way that the scores, the music had characters, like there were different themes for every character. And when the characters would meet together, there was a theme for that. And I kind of realized the power of soundtracks to, you know, convey places and people without the image. When I'm thinking about the Lord of the Rings soundtrack, I I can sort of remember, like, I can remember the Shire, that kind of, uh-huh. it was quite a fluty sort of tune whenever they were in the Shire. Can oh, you, yeah. What, can you remember it? Would you... Would you... Yes, I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I, I thought I could smell the pipe weed, and I could almost hear Master Frodo. Oh, it's swirling for pipe the weed over here. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Um, and and okay. Yeah. And so, in terms of composition, you said you kind of imagined movie themes that haven't been composed yet. In terms of composition, is it a different process than with other instruments or do you actually write down the tunes when you're composing them? Well, so I'm not a trained musician. I don't know how to read music. I don't know how to write music. You know, I grew up playing piano, but I always had a very good ear so I could kind of work things out without having to learn the theory. Writing songs is new for me. My performances in LA over the last few years have been... I've been doing like a lounge show where we play jazz and exotica and covers of things. So I started working with this producer, Tom Brennick, really wonderful producer and multi-instrumentalist. And I'll often think of melodies and I'll kind of record them into my voice memo in the car or if I'm in different places or situations, but I didn't know how to form them into songs. You know, that seemed like a mystery to me and something that was, I wasn't good enough to do. But yeah, this was a collaborative process. And Tom really, I learned so much working with Tom. He wrote a lot of the songs with me or we, you know, we'd be in the studio with a bunch of the musicians who played on the record and we'd, I hate this word, but you know, we'd jam sometimes and create something like that. I also started playing guitar in quarantine. That was my activity. And so that kind of helped form some songs, but yeah, everything, it was all different, but yeah, a lot of it is voice memos. I can whistle anything if I've heard it. Over the years there, you know, a whistler crops up and people get interested by it. But a whistler is born. A whistler is born out of a nest. <laughs> um, it's a shame because, you know, we've we've seemed to have lost touch with our old ways of communication and, and interaction with nature. And actually, I was speaking to the sound engineer, Louis, before the interview, and he said that he couldn't whistle. 
So I was hoping that you might be able to give us a little whistling tutorial. Okay. So, the, so are there, the other thing I wanted to ask you is, are there different forms of whistling? Because obviously there is the classic pouty. The pucker whistle. The pucker whistle. And yeah. then you've also got the, the thumb and the forefinger in the mouth. Can you do that? I can't do that. I'm in awe of anyone who can do that. Yeah. That's my yeah. mum can do that. And she can also oh, really? Yeah, she can also do this one where she like purses her lips and then like whistles kind of through her teeth. Oh, yeah. There are some different types. Um there's also palate whistling, which is like with the tongue on the roof of the mouth and it sounds a lot more like a wind instrument. It's interesting. Like a bamboo uh, instrument. I think yeah. my mum she, she used to be a bit of a football hooligan, so she used to do that at football matches or because to get the true it's not as nuanced is it the the fingers in the mouth but that's where you get the real sound from mm -hmm. i don't really know why i mean like yeah. really loud sound but not yeah, so totally. much melody so maybe we can get louis actually going to come into the studio with me which is slightly <laughs> uh, terrifying prospects but <laughs> okay okay louis be good yeah um okay so what 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 do we do first molly when when you're t teaching someone how to whistle what would you tell okay. them okay well louis i hope you're hydrated and you have used some chapstick he d i don't um, think he's hydrated but oh my god <laughs> <laughs> i'm really really nervous <laughs> um yeah you better get this right yeah so i don't know how to teach whistling but i'm gonna try so i guess you you know put you put your lips together and you want to kind of also it's, you know, the terms, it's, it, okay, so make, you tr try to make as small a hole as possible with your lips. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> Are you doing that? I, I can hear I you. I am, yeah, I'm doing it. Okay. Not right now, because okay. I'm speaking, but yeah, no, yeah. I, okay. yeah. Yeah, do it. Okay, so really small hole, and then you want to put your tongue kind of uh, just on the... <laughs> So funny. Sorry, I keep giggling. Here. Just on the bottom of the hole. Um, so, <laughs> sorry, we can't put this on the radio. <laughs> this is not. This is the most professional thing I've ever done. Um, okay, come on, come on. Okay. Okay. On the bottom. So... Okay. Yeah. Tongue on the bottom. Yeah. Of my... <laughs> okay. Is your tongue on the bottom of the hole? Yeah. Okay. So purse your lips and you want to um, conduct air through that hole and use your tongue to kind of, y you can use your tongue to make the hole smaller or larger. Is um, it really important that the tongue's at the bottom? Does that, is that like a, a must? It has to be uh, the I mean, you know, you could be a palate whistler for okay. all I know, but... Um, if that's the convention, I'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, go with that. Yeah, you just kind of practice that form. And I remember when I was trying to learn how to whistle when I was a kid and I, I just kind of kept making that, this kind of mouth pose and kept trying. And one day a sound came out, but oh. you know, it was just something I kept working at. Mm. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna give it a go. There you go. Go on, Louis. Yeah. Oh! oh. Hmm. Uh, hang on, hang on. Bottom he my... made a sound. Mm. 
<laughs> that's quite good. There's something yeah. in that. I think there's something there in is. that. Yeah, it sounds like a sort of plastic bag being <laughs> blown about in a breeze. Oh, that's good. There you go. There you go. Oh, my God. I can't get any notes, but I'm getting whistle. Like, well, you need to you go know, that's and, a good and start. practice. Yeah. yeah. How the hell do you get different notes on that, though? Musical notes from that. You move your lips, I think, and tongue. Yeah. So I can't yeah. imagine how you get like, because I'm only feel like I only have one tonal range. Yeah, it's. I guess it's moving the yeah lips and tongue kind of to create smaller or larger <laughs> holes. <laughs> um, wow, uh, that's amazing. I mean, you've from thousands of miles away, you've you've given a wow. boy the I'm... power of whistling. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't. I've never. You know, thank you. I'm. I'm so glad. That's you amazing. have a career, a great career ahead of you, Thank Louis. Thank you so much. You, you yeah. be careful because you might see me on one of those a stage, and we might be competing. Uh -oh. you know, like, oh. <laughs> I've created a monster. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, don't worry. He was already <coughs> monstrous. Um, Molly, thank you so much. Uh, it's oh, been no, great. Thank it's, you. Been, it's been educational and edifying and everything. <laughs> um, and thank you for having me also perhaps you could like do a little bit of one of the songs off the forgotten edge to sort of play us out which i'll then sort of fade out at the end of the the interview um okay Musician Molly Lewis speaking to Monocle's Alexis Self, therefore the latest edition of the Monocle Weekly. Still to come here on The Curator, we stop off in the United States to learn how the simple quilt has threaded itself through national life in the country. We head to Venezuela for a foreign desk explainer, and a top chef shares a refreshing summer drink. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with the curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippie. Next week, cross the Atlantic for a highlight from Monday's edition of the Monocle Daily. The premise that division is a hallmark of life in the United States is not a new one, but the fine people at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston believe that there is one object that has threaded itself through national life in the US since the birth of the Republic, and one that can bridge divide today, The Simple Quilt. The museum's new book, Fabric of a Nation, American Quilt Stories, traces the history of this textile craft in the US. Monaco's Thomas Louis spoke to one of its authors and the curator of textiles at Boston's MFA, Jennifer Swope, on how the story of the quilt became an American story too. The Museum of Fine Arts has been in existence for 150 years. For the last 120 or so, it's collected some amazing examples of American quilts and bed covers because 
There are so many people who make quilts today, and quilts really touch so many people's lives that we thought this is a real opportunity to show essentially 300 years, five centuries of American bed covers and quilts. We started to realize like, wow, we could really tell a pretty broad story. Obviously, no one museum collection can capture like the entire history of the Americas or, or even North America or even the United States. Looking back at the early examples, we know a lot about the complicated history of how cotton was cultivated and it was a global industry and the enslaved labor that it depended on. The history of textiles is a fraught human history. We are so lucky to have wonderful examples from the 20th century. And that started a really interesting conversation with contemporary artists. They were looking back at history and using textiles or even just using the quilt sort of the idiom of quilt design to look back at the history of the nation and introduce more complicated narratives. In the 1970s, when quilts, certain quilts like Amish quilts were put in art museums and sort of held up as emblems of prescient abstraction. <laughs> and how did these farm women know <laughs> that the two-dimensional picture plane was going to become so important? And which is so great for quilts because it brought a whole new generation of people into making them and into celebrating them. But it is very interesting that quilts touch so many people's lives, yet the meaning to people is very personal. So in telling these stories about quilts and, and the story of how it parallels the history of the United States and the Americas, Southern trees. We can also just go deeper. We have a really moving quilt by Carolyn Matsumi, who is a, an artist and historian, on the song Strange Fruit. It's often called America's first protest song. Blood on the leaves. And that quilt, in the context of understanding the legacy of the Civil War, so we can introduce the Civil War with three quilts. One is from the antebellum period, one is from the Civil War that was made in 1864, and the other looks back, made by an older woman looking back on her life before her father was a veteran of the war and how their lives changed. So we can go into, well, what's the legacy of the Civil War? So we have these quilts that are, you know, made between the 1980s to, to today that respond to Jim Crow laws and the Civil Rights Movement. I told everybody over the radio Make up the mind and get together Break up this old Jim Crow And then all the way to today to the murder of George Floyd One artist, Michael Thorpe, made a piece that he woke up and made it the day after the murder of George Floyd Take your knee off our necks Take your knee off our necks so some of the stories, actually, the Carolyn Metzlumi, who is the historian and artist from Ohio who, who made Strange Fruit, she describes quilts as soft landings for tough conversations. So we can bring people into these stories with these beautiful works of art. We wanted to show 
African-American, Asian-American, Native American, and Latinx works of art together. We didn't want to have a separate exhibition on African-American quilts, let's say, because even though our collection, we could do that with our collection, we wanted to pull them into a broader chronological narrative that in the exhibition we're disrupting with contemporary works of art as, as people go through. And we're hoping to sort of upend people's expectations that, you know, this is not not the quilt show that I, I would have thought in that in that there will be like a, a very a very diverse range of work. There is this elemental quality, particularly to textiles, because you know, we all touch textiles every single day and there's an immediacy to the medium that we're hoping will bring people into the message. And unpacking sort of how that happened and how quilts became so associated with the American experience, even though quilts are made all over the world throughout human history, <laughs> has really been one of the fun aspects of, of investigating this collection and publishing the book and will be a, a big part of the exhibition. Jennifer Swope from Boston's Museum of Fine Arts in a report by Monocle's Thomas Lewis. We know that a city's past heavily influences how the built environment shapes up to be, but what about the impact different political ideologies can have on how our urban areas look and function today? This week on The Urbanist, we looked at the intersection between politics, city planning and design, from dealing with a fascist past to having to adapt to the rise of capitalism. In this highlight, our editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck speaks with two guests, Matthew Souls, the author of Icebergs, Zombies and the Ultra-Thin, Architecture and Capitalism in the 21st Century, and Lucy Molesby, the author of Fascism, Architecture and the Glame of modern Milan, 1922-1943. Andrew began by asking Matthew about finance, capitalism and if our cities architecturally are always representative of what's happening in the financial world. I think buildings since the time in which buildings came into being have always embodied at least three very elemental functions. One of them, of course, is they provide shelter. One of them, by necessity, is they embody cultural values. And related to that is, a, I think, a separate third one, which is they are, by necessity, an embodiment of wealth because of the materials and labor that go into them. So I think it's fair to say that buildings always are some manifestation of wealth. And in the capitalist system, early agricultural capitalism, mercantile capitalism, industrial capitalism, you know, up to financial capitalism, have always embodied wealth and have, as your question illustrates, served to embody wealth in very extreme ways. And much of architectural history is very much about giving shape to that accumulation of wealth. I think in the era of finance capitalism, you've seen, and this is very well documented, an exponential rise in the amount of assets and the amount of capital in the world. And that's for a whole host of complex reasons, but that capital is there. And that capital is more geographically distributed than it has ever been. So there's more and more ultra high worth net individuals in more and more places with more and more capital, with more and more organizations and entities working to invest that capital in highly 
profitable locations. And real estate is an area that has been very accelerated and amplified within this kind of phenomena of what some people call the giant pool of money needing to find investments. So I think you are right that it is a longstanding phenomena, but it gets accelerated and finds more and more kind of extreme permutations in architecture and urban space in today's culture. Just a quick sidestep question before I bring back in Lucy. Do you like any of these buildings? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. I mean, you know, I like them and I hate them. <laughs> you know, like like take 432 Park in Manhattan by Raphael Vignoli. When it was completed, it was the tallest residential building in New York City, one of the tallest by roof height and incredibly slender, right? And it has this remarkable kind of obsession with the square. It's a perfect square in plan. Each face of the building is exactly identical and composed of these 10 foot by 10 foot windows. It is in its kind of formal abstraction. It's incredibly sublime, impressive. I think it's a masterpiece. But what it represents socially and what it embodies is very disturbing and very worrying. So, I mean, one of the complex things when you're an architect and interested in aesthetics and beauty is that oftentimes some very terrifyingly beautiful things exist where you can find some things that one is very drawn to but also very disturbed by. You've set me up perfectly for bringing Lucy back in here. The same question to you. Do you have that same response to this often very rational, intriguing to look at fascist architecture? Do you have that same pull and push from it? Yes. And I, when you asked that question, I thought, please ask me that question too. <laughs> um, because I think that's something that as an architectural historian, but even more broadly as a, a scholar of the built environment, that is part of the push and pull of this work and of my relationship to it. You asked, you know, why are you interested in Milan? Well, part of it is that I spent a lot of time when I was starting this project with architecture periodicals from the 1920s and 30s. And the black and white photography, the images are aesthetically extremely compelling. There are buildings, probably the best known is Giuseppe Terrani's Casa del Fascio in Como, that as much as its politics are ones that I would critique and were extraordinarily damaging, its aesthetics remain incredibly compelling. And that's true not just of that building, but of many buildings and even of urban spaces. And they've been captured in films. They've been captured by a wide variety of artists. And I think another kind of layer to this and that maybe intersects again with some of the remarks made by Owen is the afterlife of these buildings in which we see Italian fashion houses like Armani, like Fendi, establishing their headquarters in buildings who's making, but also imagery, materials, spatial thinking was deeply intertwined with fascist politics. And how does one therefore reconcile the distasteful politics, if you will, and the kind of compelling aesthetics? And that's not a product only of finance capitalism or fascist politics. I think we could do very much the same with the Roman Colosseum or the great cathedrals of the Middle Ages. The authors Lucy Molesby and Matthew Souls in a conversation with Monocle's Andrew Tuck for this week's edition of The Urbanist. 
You are with the curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. Venezuela's president Nicolas Maduro was comfortably re-elected to office in 2018. However, allegations of a false result have led the UK government to formally recognize opposition leader Juan Guaido as the country's official premier, despite simultaneously continuing diplomatic relations with Maduro's administration. Both are trying to access gold reserves held by the Bank of England. The British courts must now make a conclusive Decision. With more on this, here is our very own Andrew Muller with this week's edition of the Foreign Desk Explainer. A functional democracy might be said to be a country in which people are at liberty to disagree about who the government should be, but in agreement about who the government is. In Venezuela of late, this dynamic has, like so many other things, been more or less precisely the opposite of what it should. The country's president, Nicolas Maduro, tolerates little opposition, while a goodly number of Venezuelans and dozens of other countries don't think he's really the president anyway. The question of who presently is the legitimate government of Venezuela is currently being examined by the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. At issue is 14 tonnes of Venezuela's gold stored by the Bank of England. It is quite a prize, nearly a billion US dollars worth, amounting to around 15% of Venezuela's foreign currency reserves. The regime of President Nicolas Maduro would like access to this trove. The better to fight, it says, the COVID-19 pandemic ravaging Venezuela. Although a few sceptical souls have suggested that Maduro, whose oversight of Venezuela's public finances to date does not inspire complete confidence, just might be more interested in further enriching himself and or his cronies. It's a rich man's Were Venezuela a normal-ish sort of country, the repatriation of its gold should be barely any more controversial a request than the one any of us makes when we withdraw money from our bank account. However, the United Kingdom, where the Bank of England is located, is one of the countries which recognises as Venezuela's rightful president not Nicolas Maduro, but opposition figurehead Juan Guaido. Lest there be any doubt, the UK's government this week reiterated its official position that it is, quote, clear that Juan Guaido has been recognised by Her Majesty's government since February 2019 as the only legitimate president of Venezuela, unquote. Nicolas Maduro's case is, essentially, that that's as may be, but if my government isn't legitimate, why is the UK still maintaining diplomatic relations with it? This is not a bad question, as these things go, and one reason that the Court of Appeal ruled last year that it was all a bit of a muddle and punted it upstairs for a final decision. To understand how we got here, it is necessary to peer back through the swirling mists of time to March 2013. The queue to see Chavez is still so long, the authorities decided to hold the funeral in the military academy where he's been lying in state. 
Venezuela's president at the time, Hugo Chavez, a bellicose but charismatic populist, died of cancer aged 58. He had already designated Nicolas Maduro his preferred successor and made him vice president. Sworn in as interim president later today and hopes to get re-anointed in fresh elections. Maduro narrowly won a swiftly convened election, though the opposition disputed the result. Maduro's subsequent presidency was essentially an attempt to maintain the Hugo Chavez personality cult without Hugo Chavez's personality. It was a more or less total disaster. Venezuela was stewarded to economic ruin despite possessing the world's largest oil reserves. The Maduro regime responded to protests with murderous violence. The currency collapsed. This past March, a one million Bolivar note began circulating. It is presently worth, give or take, nothing. Millions of Venezuela's people fled, despite all of which Maduro was comfortably re-elected in 2018 unless he wasn't. We do not recognize his electoral process as valid. For us, there were no elections. New elections in Venezuela need to take place. The results of that election were widely scorned at home and abroad. Opposition to Maduro coalesced around Juan Guaido, president of the National Assembly, which translates broadly as the Speaker of Venezuela's Parliament. He is presently recognised as the legitimate president of Venezuela by, among others, the United Kingdom, the United States, most of Europe and most of South America. The US even put Venezuela's money where its mouth was in April when Guaido was able to tap $152 million of Venezuelan funds frozen in the US to buy vaccines, cover expenses for himself and his immediate circle, pay for the intriguing line item Defending Democracy and wage the current court case here in London to keep Venezuela's gold safely stashed beneath Threadneedle Street and out of the marauding mitts of Maduro. Whether or not Guaido is recognised as much of a president by actual Venezuelans is more open to question. According to one recent poll, he enjoys public support in the vicinity of 15%, though he's entitled to reply that this puts him a street ahead of Nicolas Maduro, currently struggling to post double figures. Whatever the Supreme Court decides, it would be something if all concerned, very much including the chorus of non-Venezuelan poseurs who cheered Chavismo on, reflected on how unnecessary all of this suffering has been. There is no good reason at all why Venezuela should not be a wealthy, orderly and happy country. The apparent farce concerning its gold is a product of an altogether avoidable tragedy. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. From Venezuela, we hop across the border now into Colombia for highlights from the latest edition of Food Neighbourhoods. For this week's show, Mariana Velasquez, the James Beard award-winning author and food stylist, shares a recipe for a refreshing summer drink from Colombia. Hello, my name is Mariana Velasquez. I'm a food stylist and tastemaker and author of Colombiana a rediscovery of recipes and rituals from the soul of Colombia. And today I want to share with you one of my favorite summer recipes from my book, 
called patillazo, which is a street food, it's a watermelon and lime punch drink from the city of Barranquilla, which is this great town that sprawls over the mountains and into the mouth of the Magdalena River. And it's such a vibrant city. And I discovered this recipe on a steamy afternoon. I was working all day and lunch was far away. And finally, I pulled onto the sidewalk to find a bunch of school kids chatting and joking away as they dip their spoons into tall cups of crushed watermelon with tons of lime and ice. And the watermelon pieces have been steeping into the lime for so long that the flavor had become so intense. And so the way you make this drink, it's really refreshing, is you take about 24 cups of watermelon cut up into chunks, about one cup of freshly squeezed lime juice and six cups of ice, and you put everything into a large pitcher and you use a wooden spoon or a model to sort of partly crush that fruit so the watermelon seeps into the lime juice and dissolves a little. You chill it really well for about 45 minutes and then right before serving, you top it off with club soda and serve it into tall bowl glasses with a long spoon. It's delicious, I recommend it. The author and food stylist Mariana Velasquez for this week's edition of Food Neighbourhoods. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippi. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. And thanks for listening. <laughs>